The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Good morning. As Gary said, we're in Exodus chapter 12, so if you'd like to turn there. And we're going to read from verse 24. And again, just another reminder that next week is the drop. You guys have done an amazing job at keeping the pantry filled that church is touching lives of Christ. Um, so we, you guys have been serving the, the underprivileged in our community now that way, and, and it's been really effective. So again, next week is a drop, the opportunity to bring your non-perishable goods, put them at the, the back of your car, and, and we'll make sure it gets to them. So Genesis chapter 12, verse 24 says, Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we want our lives to be shaped around you. We thank you that you have spoken through the generations, through the centuries, to your people through Scripture. So Father, we thank you for Scripture this morning and, and ask again and hope and wait expectantly that you would speak to us once more through your word, the Bible. So, Father, we come to you now, ready to listen and hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when, when, Israel, when Israel moved to Egypt, they had come as guests uh, to escape a terrible famine. Do you remember that? And, uh, but, but as Israel's population grew, so Egypt grew to fear them. And Egypt grew to hate them. And so Israel went from, being, from their status in Egyptian society as welcome guests to despised slave class. One pharaoh had tried to rescue Israel's children from this famine. Another pharaoh had uh, tried to literally murder the children of Israel through infanticide. So while one, one pharaoh had been there, their gracious host, another had been, become their tyrannical slave master. And it had been this way for a very, very, very long time. In fact, so long, it had become impossible for either slave or slave master to envisage their reality or their relationships any other way. It's as if it had always been this way, and this is the way it was always going to be. Can you imagine? Every day, a monotonous repetition of the day before. Whether you can't distinguish between the past or the present or the future because they all blur into one. Because try as you might, you just you just can't remember. You, you just can't remember anything different. And because you can't remember anything different, you can't envisage anything different in the long a future that stretches out before you. There is Egypt. There is only Egypt. Forever Egypt. C- can you imagine the conversation around the dinner table at night? Your kids ask you, how is your day today, Dad? Actually, maybe they don't bother asking you. Your, your wife asks you, how is your day today, honey? How is your day today? Well, well there, was, there was slavery and there was oppression 
and there was brutality, and there was poverty, and there was death. People died out there today. Same as the day before yesterday, there was slavery, oppression, brutality, poverty, and death. Same as yesterday, there was slavery, oppression, brutality, poverty, and death. Yes, but what about today? Why, what have you heard? There was slavery, there was oppression, there was brutality, there was poverty, and and there was Moses. And what? And there was Moses. And with the uttering of that name, everything is different. Moses' name spreads like wildfire through the slave community. Suddenly his name is on everybody's lips, and with Moses' name on everybody's lips, they can't help but remember other names, names like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And as they remember those names, they remember a promise. And for the first time, they can look out beyond, beyond Egypt's endless borders, because they remember a promise, a promise of another land, a land that is not Egypt. And so as Moses delivers his message right into the heart of Pharaoh's throne room, let my people go, they remember they are not just Pharaoh's slaves or Pharaoh's people, but they are God's slaves and God's own people. As these deep, deep memories are stirred, something new for the first time appears on the horizon. As they recall the past, suddenly the future begins to look different. They're coming out of this endless gray blur because as they learn to remember they also learn to hope. And that is why God gives them this Passover meal. This is a gift. It is a gift to Israel. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and sped our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. If we were watching Fiddler on the Roof right now, uh, this is the moment where they would be singing that song, you know, sunrise, sunset, you know, sunrise, sunset, swiftly fly the years. That was really unpleasant, wasn't it? But, but this is... <laughs> Irrecognizable. But, but they, so the, the, the point is years go by, right, right? Centuries, centuries go by. Now they're no longer slaves in Egypt, but now they are captives in Babylon. And once again, they sit down to dinner around this Passover table. Imagine what this meal, this meal that they had first eaten together as slaves in Egypt, imagine what it meant to a people who were captives in Babylon. And their young children are asking them, what does this meal mean? And you try to explain it to your young children and their young minds, they put two and two together. Oh, this meal helped them to remember, all right. But it also taught them to hope. Obey these instructions, passing ordinance for you and your descendants. Again, centuries go by. I won't sing it this time, right? But the centuries go by. And... And now they are no longer captives in Babylon, but now they are conquered by Rome. And once again, they sit down to dinner around this Passover table. Imagine what this meal meant for people who had eaten this first of all as slaves in Egypt, who had shared it as captives in Babylon. Imagine what this meal meant to a people who were eating it together as people conquered by Rome. And their children are asking them, what does this meal mean? And, and they start to explain it to their children and their young minds. They put two and two together. And it helped them to remember. But it also taught them to hope. Hope. That one day God is going to hear our cry. And they took another mouthful together as a family. 
And one day, God is going to deal with Caesar the way he dealt with Pharaoh, and they took another mouthful. And one day, God is going to deal with Rome the way he dealt with Egypt, and they finished every last morsel. And every last morsel told them that one day, God is going to deal with our occupying oppressors the way he dealt with our slave masters. And so as they shared this meal together, right under the noses of the Roman occupation, And I sometimes wonder, did the the Romans really understand the significance of this meal? Because if they did, would they have let them celebrate this? I don't know. But as they celebrate this meal, right under the noses of the Roman occupation, as they ate in each other's homes with family and friends, they could sit across the table from each other. And without having to say a word, without having to say anything, they could just give each other that knowing nod of recognition that says, it's okay, because we've had other oppressors, and God dealt with them. It's okay, because God sent them a deliverer. He sent them Moses, and he will send us our Moses soon. Well, this is how this meal functioned in the life of Israel, right? It's it's not just dinner, right? We get that, right? This is not just dinner. This this meal helped them to remember, and it taught them to hope, and it became increasingly important. Its importance was heightened for them during times of captivity and during times of foreign occupation. And it would be, inevitably, it would be this meal, this Passover meal, that would be Jesus' last meal. It would be Jesus' last supper. You know the the famous painting, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper? That's a picture of them celebrating the Passover meal. And as Jesus and his disciples sit down to dinner, once again, around the Passover table, uh, across the table from Jesus sat Judas. And Judas looked at Jesus and he thinks, You're never going to hear our cry. You don't even understand the cry of your own people's hearts. Are you even one of us? And he takes another mouthful. And Judas looked at Jesus and he thinks to himself, you're never going to deal with Caesar or with his puppet King Herod. You're not going to kick the Romans out. And he takes another mouthful. And Judas looked at Jesus and he thinks to himself, Jesus, you're no Moses. And he finishes every last morsel and he nearly chokes on those last morsels because this particular Passover meal has not filled him with hope. It has filled him with bitter disappointment. And so Judas gets up from the table. What a fool I've been following this man around for the last three years. He gets up from the table and he slips away. And under the cover of night, he goes and he finds the Pharisees the religious folk, the the teachers, the experts in the law, and he sells Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Well, the question I want us to wrestle with this morning is this. What on earth? What on earth? Maybe I can be a little bit more articulate with that question. How on earth? How how on earth do you go from being the people, the, the Pharisees and Judas, being the people who are waiting for the deliverer, hoping for the deliverer, looking for the deliverer, praying for him. Every Passover meal comes and goes. You remember how God sent you Moses. He sent you a deliverer before. You hope that this will be the Passover when your deliverer comes to you. And the deliverer comes and you end up being the people who betray him, sell him and kill him. How does that happen? I know someone will say, well, Satan made him do it, right? We're told that that Satan entered into Judas. We're also told that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. But we also know that Satan can't do anything unless, of course, God permits it, which is also something that is emphasized in Exodus, in that that passage where, where Moses delivers his message, let my people go. You know what it says? 
it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So, so the sovereignty of God is always at play, right? We, we understand that. But God's sovereignty doesn't absolve the Pharisees or Pharaoh from their responsibility. And, and this is also emphasized in, in, in Exodus. Because as, as Moses delivers that message repeatedly, let my people go, we're told that he, he keeps going back on his word and he, Pharaoh doesn't let them go. And every other time it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But you know what it says every other time? Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. What we see there is God's sovereignty and human responsibility working in tandem together. Now, I'm not going to attempt to resolve this age-old paradoxical tension that exists between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. But what I'm interested in this morning is the human responsibility side of that equation. And I'm going to ask the question again, how on earth? How on earth do you go from being the guys who are waiting and hoping and longing and looking for the deliverer? The deliverer comes and you end up betraying, selling and killing him. How does that happen? Well, we've already said that that, uh, Judas was bitterly disappointed. But but I think it's more than that. You don't just kill someone because you're disappointed with them. I think you kill someone when you want to shut them up, when you want to silence them. And so here's how it happened. So this young Jewish preacher comes along and he starts telling stories. And I say young Jewish preacher because, of course, they weren't thinking to themselves, oh, son of God, second person of the Trinity, God incarnate. They're not thinking that. They're just thinking, there's this young Jewish preacher and he comes along and he starts telling stories. Not, not just any stories, right, but parables. And parables always get an interesting response from people. And it usually goes something like this. You you hear a parable and you think to yourself, I'm not exactly sure what you just said, but I'm pretty sure I don't like it. This is, right? But parables get that kind of conflicted response. Don't know what you just said, but I'm pretty sure I don't like it. And the closer they listened and the more they listened to Jesus' parables, the more convinced they became that, no, we really don't like what you are doing with this. They didn't like the way his parables would rearrange their reality because they would see reality from only one angle and only one direction. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily untrue. You see, the way they saw it was that Egypt had been their oppressor, which was true. Babylon had been their oppressor and Rome was their oppressor and they were the oppressed. The trouble is Jesus comes along and he doesn't make a sharp enough distinction for them as they might like between the oppressor and the oppressed. Jesus identifies the people who need to be delivered and the people they need to be delivered from. And he says, well, you're you're one and the same people. Now, if you find that confusing, let's sit with that confusion for a minute because that's how the Pharisees felt. It's confusing. How can the people who need to be delivered and the people you need delivering from, how can they be the same people? You see, the Pharisees have been crying out, deliver us from our Egypt. Deliver us from our Babylon. Deliver us from Rome. But Jesus prays, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. Oh, oh, wait, when you say deliver us from evil, you mean the evil of Rome. Or when you say deliver us from evil, you mean the evil of the prostitute, right? The the prostitute, deliver us from her sins and and the people who go to her. When you say deliver us from evil, you mean deliver us from from the tax collector, those people who were traitors to our nation, Because they're collecting taxes for the foreign Roman occupation. Imagine us in their situation, how we would feel about a guy like that. Just just think about that. 
When you say deliver us from evil, you mean deliver us from the evil of the tax collectors, the, phar- the, the, tax collectors, the, the prostitutes, the sinners from Rome. You mean deliver us from those people. And Jesus said, no, no, I'm talking about you people. I'm talking about you. you need, Israel needs to be delivered, first of all, from the likes of you. And you need to be delivered from yourselves. And so Jesus tells them this parable. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from the farmers. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another slave to them, and they hit him on their head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. They beat some, and they killed some. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. Because they knew he had said this parable against them, they were looking for a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is what it was like to be a Pharisee and listen to Jesus tell his stories and parables. Every time he opened his mouth, you had to duck. Okay? You'd be listening like this. So, so sometimes, sometimes they'd be standing there looking down at their feet and they're thinking, oh my goodness, when is he going to shut up? Is, is he, he going to shut up? Is he going to stop telling these stories? Because if he doesn't, we're going to have to shut him up. We're going to have to silence him. We're going to have to put an end to this for good. Authors um, Gabe Lyons and uh, David Kinnaman have, have written a book called Un, Unchristian. And um, one of our elders put, uh, pointed this out to me uh, last year. And uh, it's, it's really just a book reviewing uh, interviews with thousands of young people ages 18 to 29. A few weeks ago, Dave Tate very helpfully pointed out to us that 18 to 29 is the black hole of church attendance. That they're just not coming anymore. They're not, they're not involved. And, um, and so they interviewed these 18 to 29-year-olds who aren't involved in church life, who have no church affiliation. And they, and they asked them the question, well, what do you think of the church? When you hear, when you hear the word Christian or Christianity, what, what comes to mind? What comes to mind? They're asking the question, tell us what you think about us. I said, that's a terrible question to ask. Well, you ask someone, yeah, tell me what you think about me. Go on, be honest. Right? You immediately regret asking that question, right? Because you suddenly realize, oh, they're taking me at my word, right? And, and, and this person doesn't know how to be polite. These people were not polite. What they noticed was that throughout these interviews, after interview after interview, they noticed that the same things kept coming up. There are only about seven or eight things repetitiously throughout these thousands of interviews. Over and over again they were mentioned. And so what they did, they highlighted these seven or eight things and they put them into this book. Just just one of these things, um, for example, was this. Outsiders, remember these these young 18 to 29-year-olds who are not here, say our hostility to gays, not just opposition to homosexual politics and behavior, but disdain for gay individuals has become virtually synonymous with the Christian faith. Did you hear what they're saying? When they hear Christian, they think gay hater. That's, that's what they, now I'm not saying that's how we are, but, but that's how we're perceived. 
Now, we can shrug our shoulders and go, oh, well, well that's, that's up to them if they want to perceive us that way. Right? But, but this is the next generation. They're not here. We, we need to reach them. Now, I don't believe that the homosexual act is God's creational intention for human sexuality. The Bible is very clear about that. But here's the thing. This is what Tim Keller says. He says, be the kind of person about whom people conclude that even if they disagree with you, you are someone they can approach about such matters. Be the kind of person about whom people conclude that even if they disagree with you, you are someone they can approach about such matters. Wouldn't it be amazing if, if when the wheels come off the wagon for these 18 to 29-year-olds, gay or straight, when the wheels come off the wagon for them, as it will, as it does for us all at some point in time, right? When, we're, when they're hurting, when they're in darkness, when they're bleeding, wouldn't it be great if they think church, that's where I'll find love and acceptance and forgiveness and real hope and real healing. Well, what I'm saying is, we, let's make sure that we don't scapegoat a particular group of people. Even though we, they may want to scapegoat us, let's make sure that we don't scapegoat anybody. You see, I can put a spotlight on someone else's sin. I can do that. And, and as I put a spotlight on someone else's sin, very quickly I can lose track of my own sin. You see, I, I, can, I can do that. I can, I can say, well, the whole country is going to hell in the handbasket and it's because of those people over there. And very quickly that absolves me and it means, well, it's not, going, it's not because of me or anything that's going on in my heart and the darkness that resides there. Look, I, I don't want us to grow insensitive to certain types of sin. What I'm saying is let's make sure that we heighten our sensitivity to our own sin. Let's heighten our sensitivity to our own sin. We've got to do this. We've got to do this because if we don't, here's what happens. Jesus told them this parable. Once there, was a there were two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. And at this point, the Pharisees are already like, okay, I'm out. Okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm not listening to any more of this. Okay, I, I'm, done. I'm not going to listen to any more of these ridiculous parables and stories. You don't say that about me. Jesus carried on. He says, the Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself. I, I thank you, God that I'm righteous. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, that, that I'm not like those, those uh, adulterers or robbers or evildoers or like this tax collector here. He actually lists them off like that. But Jesus says the tax collector, the collector stood at a distance and he beat his chest and he didn't dare to raise his eyes to heaven, but he said, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, that man, not the other man, went home justified before God. Forever exalted self will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I thank you, God, that I'm not an adulterer, that I'm not an evildoer, a robber, or like this tax collector here. I thank you, God, that I'm not what? You fill in the blank. Who, who's, on, who's on your list? Homosexual? Gay activist? Who, who's on your list? I've got a list in, in my head. Who's on the list in your head? In your head? You see, I get the Pharisees. I do, and I'll tell you why I get the Pharisees. Because I actually care about the course of our nation. I care about the course of our nation. You know what? The people who cared the most about the course of their nation in Israel back then were the Pharisees. You couldn't find anyone who cared more. 
Because there were other people around at the time who, who were kind of blasé about it. They, they, didn't, they didn't care, shrugged their shoulders. Well, Kesarasra, whatever will be, we, we can't do anything about it. They not only did nothing about it, they, they kind of uh, were making things worse. But the Pharisees, no, no, they cared. And they were working hard at it. You see, they saw the countryside littered with crosses. You, you, you know that Jesus and those two thieves who were crucified were just three. They were just three out of thousands of Jews who were crucified by the Romans under their occupation. It was horrific. And, and so they cried out and they said, God, have you not seen the sins of Rome? Have you not seen the sins of Rome? Rome is our Egypt. Rome is our Babylon. Deliver us from evil. Deliver us from Rome. And the deliverer, Jesus Christ himself, comes to them. And they say to him, have you not seen the sins of Rome? Have you not seen the sins of the prostitute? If you knew who this woman was, you wouldn't let her touch you. Have you not seen the sins of the tax collector? Why are you eating with him? Deliver us from those people. Deliver us from evil. Deliver us from those people. And Jesus, Jesus says, no, have you not seen your own sin lately? Have you not looked into your own heart and seen the darkness and evil that resides there? You know what my response to that question when Jesus asked me that quite often? It's like, no, not really. I haven't seen it. And, and, and the reason is, is because I, it, it just comes naturally to me to defend me. I, I'm a, I don't need anyone helping me to legitimize or justify me. I don't need a lawyer doing it. I am an expert at it. I just, I'm just being honest. It's true. I'm not making this stuff up. I have always got a good reason why my sin is not as ugly, not as dark, not as ghoulish, not as evil as the guy sitting next to me. I've even got a strategy for listening to sermons this way. I'm always thinking to myself, oh man, I wish so-and-so were here. They really need to hear this. Oh, you, you, you play that game too? I've even got, here's a frightening thing, okay? I've, I've got a strategy for reading the Bible that way. I've got a strategy for reading the Bible that way so that the, the Word of God touches other people's sin, but it never really touches mine, right? It never comes down hard on me, but it kind of just winks benevolently at my own sin. It's just not such a big deal. I know how to read the Bible as a legit, legitimating narrative for myself, for me, and whatever it is I happen to be doing at the time. But here's what happens if you can continue to read the Bible that way. Here's what happens. One day you will long to hear the voice of God. And you will reach out for your Bible. And you'll open it up and you will read book after book, chapter after chapter, verse after verse of Scripture. And the only voice you'll hear is your own. The deliverer came to them. He did. He showed up. And he wanted to deliver them. He wanted to deliver them. But the trouble is, the people who needed to be delivered didn't want to be delivered from themselves. And so they couldn't hear Jesus. And sometimes, neither can we. Here's the genius of what Jesus does with this, uh, with this meal. He takes this meal the Passover meal, which had helped them to remember and taught them to hope for centuries. It helped them to remember how God had sent them Moses. He'd sent them a deliverer, and it taught them to hope that once again God would send them their deliverer in time. It would be soon, any time soon. 
And he takes this meal. They had done all that for Israel. And right at the end of the meal, he turns it. He takes this meal and he turns it. He gives it this twist. And he says, this meal is no longer about just Israel being delivered from Rome. It's first of all about Israel being delivered from Israel. It's no longer about us being delivered from the sins of Rome or the sins of the tax collector or the sins of the prostitute or the sins of whoever. It's not about being delivered from the sins of those people. This meal is now about being delivered from our own sin. It's no longer a meal about being delivered from their evil, but it's about being delivered from the evil that resides in our own hearts. And and here's the thing. Jesus says, I'm not just your Moses. I'm not just your Moses leading you out, confronting Pharaoh. I am your sacrificial Passover lamb because it's going to be my blood on your doorposts when the wrath of God passes you over. Perhaps at one point, sin was a comfort and a friend. I know what that's like. At one point, sin may have been a comfort and a friend, but recently you've noticed that sin has become a tyrannical slave master. And things have been like this for a very, very long time. So much so, it's hard for you to imagine your reality or your relationships any other way. It's as if things have always been this way. And this is the way things are always going to be. You you can't distinguish nowadays between the past and the present and the future. They all blur into one. Because... uh, because you, you can't remember anything before this sin and, and so you can't envisage anything else in the long grey future of sin that stretches out before you. But this morning I, I just want to announce that there is a name that is spread like wildfire through the slave community, those of us who understand what it's like to be enslaved by sin. And with the uttering of Jesus' name, everything is different. Everything can begin to change. With his name comes the promise of forgiveness and the promise of new beginnings. Jesus Christ is our deliverer and he's the only one who can deliver us from ourselves. Let's come before God in prayer. Heavenly Father, faithful God, you are our deliverer. Oh, but sometimes it's such a painful and difficult thing to look into our own hearts and see the darkness that resides there. So Father, I pray that you would give us this morning the courage we need to do that. Father, we want to repent of the times we have condemned the sins of others while ignoring our own sin, for the times we've pointed out the speck in our brother's eye while ignoring the plank in our own. And as we look at our own hearts, I pray for grace, that we would not be overwhelmed by the evil that we find there, that we would not be left utterly ruined or left to our own devastation. But instead we pray, deliver us. Deliver us from evil. Father, we thank you this morning for the deliverer who shed his, his own blood for the forgiveness of sins, whose blood can cover us so that your wrath would pass us by. Father, once again we thank you for Jesus the only one who can deliver us from ourselves Amen